Hello, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Are you ready to hear the Word of God? Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed um, the time that we had in worship. It was um, edifying, to say the least. I felt uh, stimulated in my affections for Christ, um, even my thoughts about the Lord. And that's what will happen when you have uh, lyrics and you can get a sense that the people that are leading in worship have a right view of God themselves and you are brought into that. So I'm very thankful for that, for, for being able to worship with you and for this opportunity to, to speak to you the word of God. And uh, as Pastor Swartz said about uh, the times that we were able to interact with one another, I remember him in the preaching lab, a very capable preacher himself, and I was wondering, why is he in lab? He really already has this down. Um, he is doing so well. And I, I just it was obvious that wherever the Lord would plant him, that he would do well. Because he is a man that has a heart for Christ and a heart for God's people and a heart for the word of God. And it, it makes sense that he would have on his heart to have a conference such as this and even entitle it the Steadfast Conference. Because that's what we're called to do, to, pe- to be people who will be steadfast in our faith, in our lives, in our convictions. Uh, we do live in a society today that uh, is not steadfast at all. It is just the opposite. Um, it is wavering. It is inconsistent. It is misdirected. And we are to be just the opposite because we are called to be examples. We are to be lights in the world, are we not? And that is our calling. And I'm thankful for the privilege to come and speak the word of God to you as I will open up Psalm 107 this morning and later in the afternoon have the privilege to speak from from Isaiah. I'm sorry, not Isaiah, but Ephesians chapter 6 on the steadfastness of prayer. Let me pray for our time. Uh, Father God, thank you for these moments ahead that you would guide and direct us as we come to hear your word that it would be a blessing to our souls that you would use it that you would honor it and even for my own soul that you help me to understand the loftiness of the task ahead that I can communicate with clarity to these dear people more of who you are and they can walk away seeing your greatness your worth your holiness. And perhaps even as we all pause for a moment and individually would ask the Lord to do a work in our own heart, we know what burdens we may come with, concerns, perhaps struggles that we have, even joys that we have that we want to be multiplied, that you would answer us. We thank you for your Savior, in Christ's name, amen. Look with me at Psalm 107, Psalm 107, and the title of the message is God's Steadfast Goodness and Love, God's Steadfast Goodness and Love. And from this title, you perhaps could say a subtitle might be The Motivation for Steadfast Thanksgiving. Because God is good, because God is a God of love, it should motivate us to offer consistent, steadfast thanksgiving to this great and awesome God. I thoroughly enjoyed our worship time earlier, as I already said, and even as we were singing out, how great is our God? And how appropriate to what you even heard last night about the glory of God and appropriate to this text that is in front of us, of a God who is good and a God who is loving and worthy of our consistent, our passionate, our resounding thanksgiving to him. I read a portion of the text, verses 1 to 3, and it states, Oh, give thanks for the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the land of the adversary. And gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, 
from the north and from the south. We're going to work our way through the entire psalm, but obviously verses 1 to 3 sets the tone, the theme for the rest of the psalm itself. That God is presenting himself as a God that is worthy of thanksgiving because of his very nature being that that is good, a God that is a God of love, and he is worthy of all thanks and praise and honor because he has demonstrated it in the life of his children by gathering them again from exile. And he is saying to them, let those who have been redeemed, who I have brought back, give a resounding thanks to me. I have demonstrated my goodness and my love yet again. Now, when we look at Psalm 107 and understand the context of the book, it is opening book five of the Psalms. It's an important historical lesson because now the people of God are being restored to the land from Babylonian exile. You might even note the Psalms that lead up to 107. And there are four Psalms that are setting the context even for 107. And they're revealing and commenting on God's work on earth. Psalm 104, we see the history of a creative God and the flood account. Psalm 105, we see the history of this covenant God who has initiated and ratified the covenant with Abraham. He has delivered the people of God from Egypt and he has led them to the promised land. In Psalm 106, we see the history again of a covenant violating but people now who were eventually delivered into Babylonian exile. And then in Psalm 107, we see the history of a faithful God who returns the people to their land. 104, the God of creation. 105, this God of a covenant who has ratified and initiated it. 106, a covenant people who are inconsistent in their love for him and they have violated his covenant. But yet in Psalm 107, despite your violations, because I'm a God of goodness and a God of love, I will gather you again. Note with me, if you will, if you look at Psalm 106, and it really helps us understand the flow of thought leading into 107. In Psalm 106, verse 13, Notice the statement there. In verse 13, it says, They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So here it is, these unappreciative people who are now craving and violating even their own conscience. And really, in one sense, they are saying to God, yes, you have delivered us from this great power, Egypt, but we are dissatisfied. Notice, if you will, in verse 26 again. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and that they would be cast, he would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in the lands. And eventually, of course, that would happen. Notice verse 43. In Psalm 106, many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and they sank down in their iniquity. Nonetheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. Here is a statement even in this text that is telling us of God's compassion. A history of a people who many times would violate their covenant with the living God, but yet when they would cry out to him, God would, in his compassion, in his love, in his goodness, help. Verse 45. And he remembered his covenant for their sake, and he relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. And notice the prayer that goes out from the people of God in verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So the people of God cry out to the living God. They are deserving of their captivity. They're deserving of exile. But God has already stated, if you would cry out, I will make you an object of my compassion. And so they do. And now in Psalm 107, we see it unfolding. And that is why, as the psalm states, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is, in fact, 
everlasting. How many of you this morning believe or convinced that God's love is everlasting? How many of you are convinced that God is a good God? And we were going to see this evident as we unfold Psalm 107. This message in one sense is about uh, adding depth to an often quoted phrase and even this portion of scripture. I remember growing up as a kid and I would often hear people quoting, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then someone would also say, well, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And I would hear that repeated in church and there was a time I didn't quite understand it because I didn't know the Lord. And as I thought about that and even think about it now as I preach to you, I don't take issue with the quote for obvious reason. It is a portion of scripture. And I don't even take issue with the saying about God is good all the time. God is good. But I want us to understand the basis of the theology expressed in the quote and the truism. I believe that when we understand the rationale for any statement, that it adds clarity and it adds meaning and it adds longevity to the statement. What do I mean by this? Clarity. That is simply a better understanding of something which may not have been fully grasped before. So I gain clarity. There is meaning. Now that I have clarity, I see the intention for society and even for my own life. I say longevity. I make this point because once we have clarity and meaning, the truth gain will provide us with a lifetime of guidance in life's journey. So there's clarity in my mind. I, I, I grasp it a bit more. Now I have meaning and I understand God's intention for my life. And then it will provide longevity for my life. It can get me through those moments in life that are difficult, that are hard. And perhaps even keeping with this conference, we can say that our life's journey will indeed be steadfast. And that's what we all want. A life journey that is steadfast, that is consistent, that is grounding, that is unwavering. And do we not need that even more so in the church today? Churches and people that will be grounded and unwavering and immovable. Because what is happening in our churches today, they're moving and shifting with the culture. They're intimidated by the culture. We will be like you to invite you. We'll, we'll be more sort of appeasing in our preaching. There's certain words that we will not use any longer because perhaps that offends you. I am so thankful, as I'm sure that many of you, that at some point in time, you were offended by the gospel. Amen? That the gospel said to you, you are undone. You are a sinner. You are incomplete. You cannot gain God's favor on your own. I reject your self-righteousness. And it was an offense to me. But yet, once one realizes the true essence of the gospel and the veils are removed and the blinders are gone as the God of this world had blinded us before, then we see the glory of the gospel and we realize, God, thank you for that. But we don't often do that. At least maybe we do because you're here at this steadfast conference. But a great segment of the church doesn't do it. It's as if we're making an apology for the gospel today. Perhaps I can make this statement or I can say it differently. When we have an in-depth understanding of God's truth, it will help us in these various life circumstances. And that's in contrast to the trends of pop catchphrases or even scriptural references that are ripped out of their context and what they're intended to communicate. And I, I wish I'd heard everything that Pastor Swartz said last night as we talked a little bit about his after his message and the crossing of the Red Sea. And often people will take that account and say, this is all about your life. Just go to the Lord and he'll part the waters of your difficulties. Go to the Lord, and whatever you're facing, all the pharaohs that are chasing you in life will be cast into the sea. No, it is about the glory of God, is it not? And I would think if we have a, a broader and a more in-depth and a biblical view of God, then that will take us through those moments in life when we are, in fact, in the valley of the shadow 
of death. So let's consider more the flow of the passage itself. In Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3, we see the call to give thanks to a God who is good. And then what we'll note in verses 4 to 42, the psalmist gives particular reasons for us to offer thanks to this good God. So he builds this case, if you will. First, there is a call that we should simply because God is good and he is a God of love. It's evidence in that the fact that he has brought you back from captivity. And then in 4 to 42, now let me give you the particular reasons, the particular expressions of his goodness in bringing you back to build his case. And then in verse 43, there's a challenge to consider the rationale for the thanksgiving. What do I mean by that? The psalm ends in that one verse essentially to say, now consider all that I've written that you should indeed be a people who give thanks. Now, there's some key words that I want us to highlight that go through verses 4 to 42. In verses 4 to 9, we'll notice a segment that talks about God, who is a God who guides the wandering soul. So our key word is guide. In verses 10 to 16, the people of God should give thanks for God's goodness because he frees even the rebellious soul. He frees. In verses 17 to 22, we can say that indeed we should be steadfast in our thanksgiving for his goodness because he heals the afflicted soul. He heals. Verses 23 to 32, we should indeed be steadfast in our thanksgiving because of God's goodness because he rescues the storm-tossed soul. He rescues Then in verses 33 to 42, we should indeed be steadfast in our thanksgiving because he is a God who intervenes on behalf of the needy soul. So he guides, he frees, he heals, he rescues, he intervenes. And then in verse 43, we'll notice the consideration. But let's look at verses 1 to 3 as we make our way through this psalm. In verses 1 to 3, here is a calling to give thanks to the Lord because he is, in fact, a good God. And let's look at the verses in reverse, if you will. Let's begin in verse 3 in this first segment. Here is a call of the people of God who are scattered among the vast Babylonian empire to return to the promised land. And the breadth of this rescue is going to be explained in the rest of the psalm. We know that the people of God, because of their rebellion, their constant violation of the covenant, God, in his compassion, and even in his love, he sends them away in exile. In one sense, to chasten them so that they may come to their senses. So, 70 years, they are away in Babylonian exile. And now, they are coming back. God has used his servant, Cyrus, to, to do what? To um, conquer the Babylonian empire and now free the people of God so that they can come back to their land. And then in verse 2, those who are called to give thanks. It says here, let the redeem of the Lord, whom he has redeemed from the land of the adversary. They are called to give thanks to the living God. And here when he says, let the redeemed, uh, an intimate word that is communicating that those who are redeemed, it comes by way of those who are the closest relative. We think about its use in the book of Ruth and, and having that Goel, that redeemer. And so God is redeeming his people. And I think it curious as the wording, this sense of a close relative. And God is the closest to them. He brings them back. But let's consider this prophetically. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 5. Isaiah speaks to this reality that God will bring his people back again. And then in verse 5, it says there, do not fear, I am with you. Let me pause for a second. I had not intended to say this, but at times one is reading and you're stimulated yourself as you're preaching to the people of God. And some advice for you. This will be an excellent study for you if you simply look through Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, and see consistently with you. I am with you. 
do not fear, I am with you. And here they are gaining comfort because God is saying to them, I will bring your offspring from the east and gather them from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, whom I have made. So here is this prophetic call that indeed will go forth to bring God's people back to the land. And this is what we see in Psalm 107. But let's consider even more. When we think about God's greatness, he is a God that is now bringing back his people from this foreign land as a testimony of his covenant love towards them. So the psalmist is crying out, he is saying to us even today, we should offer God his due satisfaction for his faithfulness to us. I would say it this way, if you understand the cost of redemption, if you understand the depth of sin, if we understand the holiness of God, if we understand what we have gained, then we should all be a people who can offer nothing but our praise to this great, compassionate, and loving God. And that is why theology is so important. It really is. How can I gain and understand the cost of redemption without an in-depth view of Christology and understanding what was paid on the cross? How can I understand uh, thanksgiving if I don't look at the depth of sin? If I don't have a correct harmardiology and I look at my own sin and original sin and the battle with sin itself and the consequences of sin? How can I really offer a resounding thanksgiving if I don't have a proper view of God's holiness, his utter sense of awesomeness? Then when I've studied God and who he is, and I look at that in view of my own sin and who I am, I cannot help but offer a resounding thanksgiving to him. But if I have a small view of God, an insignificant view of God, if I have a low view of the cross, if I have an inaccurate view of sin, then I won't feel the same way when I consider his work in my life. Just the mere fact that he knows my name. The mere fact amongst his creation that he has had thought of me, that in his mind that I was his elect, is enough, really, I think, truly, to make us shiver. But we don't often say those things in the church, although we should. Do you agree with me so far? We should. I just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to make sure. God is great. He's a God of love, a God of goodness. And when we think about his greatness, it should make us tremble that he would even think about us and more or less think about us that he would redeem us. But he would redeem us through his precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why if you've studied Christology and the person of Jesus Christ and you think that he is that one that would crowd, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we should be thankful. Verse 1, I said we were doing things a bit differently. I don't think I've ever taught this in preaching. I have to go in reverse, but it's the first. (laughs) Verse 1, the opening verse provides us with this overarching reason for the people of God to offer thanks, the goodness and loving kindness of God. I mean, this is a constant call throughout the psalmist and throughout the Old Testament. So when he says here, God is good, what does it mean? Well, the word can mean the sense that he is to one that is joyful, one that is pleasant, to be pleasing. And here is carrying this idea that he is beneficial to us. He is a good God. It is a part of his character to express goodness, and that goodness now is beneficial to us in life. Let's go through some texts that will help sort of ground this for us, if you will. First Chronicles 16, you don't have to turn, but I'll give you the references. Just take note of them. First Chronicles 16, 34 and 35. Before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks for the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, save us, 
O God of our fathers. Ezra 3.11. It says, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout. 106 verse 1. Praise the Lord, or give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of his mighty deeds? 118, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 136, and what's beautiful about Psalm 136, in every verse, there's this refrain, Oh, give thanks for the Lord, to the Lord, for he is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 34 and 8, the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that verse. Do you love that verse? Taste and see. Experience it. And I love the imagery that the psalmist creates for us in Psalm 34 and 8. That as we go through life's journey, we are tasting God's goodness. Now, um, I know that every husband here would say that they love their wife's cooking. Amen? Here's your opportunity for some good points here, man. You would say that you love your wife's cooking. And you love tasting it. And perhaps there is a favorite meal that you have that she prepares for you. Or perhaps it's reverse. I know a couple men, they're the... The culinary, they have the culinary skills in their family. It's not true in my home. Um, but there's certain things I like that my wife does. I love to taste it. I love to eat it. And it leaves some sense of a memory uh, in my mind, if you will. Can you prepare that again? I want to have that experience again. And so the psalmist with this wording is saying to us, Oh, taste and see if the Lord is good. Experience him. It will impact you. It will create a memory for you that you will want even more. And that is all of our desire, isn't it? That once we taste of God, especially once we have come to faith, who wants anything that the world has to offer? Amen? When we have tasted of God, then the things of the world do not satisfy our spiritual palate. Psalm 100. For the Lord is good, is everlasting, as His loving kindness is everlasting. You see it in Psalm 135, 145, Jeremiah 33, Lamentations 3, 5. He is my portion. Nahum 1, 7. He is good. He is a stronghold. And when we take all of these verses together, just this sampling of them, it is saying this. God is a good God, and it's associated with what? He is a coming judge. His mighty deeds. God is merciful. God is patient. God offers hope. God is a God that should be tasted and experienced. He is our portion. He is our stronghold. He is a God of loving kindness. He is a God that rescues. He is a God that protects. He is a God that is a refuge to us. He is a guide to us. He is faithful to us. He is gracious to us. So therefore, when we consider God's goodness, all of these words that are associated with his goodness give us more reason to say, I will be steadfast and my thanksgiving. But notice the next word that he says in Psalm 107, his loving kindness is everlasting. The use of this word, this Hebrew word hesed, is a wonderful word, one of the most beautiful words in both testaments. At times translated covenant love, that ESV will translate it, and I like it, steadfast love. I tend towards preferring the NASB, which has loving kindness. And To a certain degree, when you think about the translation, loving kindness was, as I best understand it, the attempt really of the translators to say, the word is so rich, so how do we communicate it? This expression of his love, but yet his kindness and and acts of kindness that he shows consistently. And that's why even perhaps the leaning of the ESV to say steadfast love, it is a love that is immovable. It is not inconsistent. It will overcome barriers. It will overcome sin. It will overcome the inconsistencies even over a covenant people. 
And that's why at times it's simply translated covenant love to communicate that very thing because that's what it's communicating. God is a God of covenant love. He will not violate his covenant. Although those to whom he has had the covenant may violate, he will not. Nearly impossible, really, to translate and get its full meaning. Now, the noun construct of this, this word, we see it 245 times, and there are 127 occurrences in the psalmist. And 124 occurrences, it's attached to a possessive suffix. It's simply saying, your hesed, or your loving kindness. And why is that important? Because it communicates this idea of divine intervention. It is a reminder that God is a God who will keep his covenant even at times despite your inconsistency. It communicates this idea of a definite relationship that exists between the two. And what it does, in the sense of this world, it compels the person who has initiated it to express loyalty and compassion. God consistently does that to his people. I will be loyal to you despite your lack of loyalty. We see a great picture of it even in the book of Hosea. And what does the book of Hosea communicate to us? Uh, The Lord says to his prophet that you are to marry a woman of harlotry because that's what my people have become, a people of harlotry. But yet I will remain faithful to them. And at times you see God saying to his people, oh, how can I give you up? How can I cast you aside? And the natural, we would say, easily cast them aside. Look how they violated your covenant. But yet, he says, there is a sense in which his loving kindness and even at times his compassion is stirred up inside of him. And he says, I can't. I reach out to you again. I will be loyal to you. I will be compassionate to you. Um. Bruce Demarus, in his work, The Cross and Salvation, communicates this about hesed. And and to introduce it, I would say that this use of loving kindness is generally, it has a sense that it's, it's stronger than the general use of grace because it's stressing something even more. And Bruce Demarus communicated that he says that it stresses favor within a specific relationship and connotes the attitude and action of the stronger or more privileged toward the weaker or less privileged. And that last part of the statement makes so much sense because it is God that is saying to his creation and to his covenant people, I am the stronger, I am the more privileged, and I will help you, I will show compassion toward you and goodness toward you. And aren't we thankful for God's intervention in our lives? Well, God, the the stronger, helps us the weaker. In our weak moments in life, God intervenes in our lives. And to the people of God here who have been scattered now for 70 years, he says, now I will bring you back. Now that sort of leads us into verse 4. Now when you think about the reasons to prove a point, I would say that you want them to be comprehensive or as comprehensive and as clear as possible, right? A a point needs to be made. Let's make it comprehensive and let's make sure that it's clear. Over my years of pastoring, there have been couples that have come to me, pastor, we want to be married. And I'll often ask them, well, give me the reasons that you want to be married. And they have to say to me more than simply because. Because is not enough. I expect for them to say something like, well, I want to marry this person because we can minister together. Or perhaps they say, well, we have similar likes and dislikes. Uh, We have differences that, in fact, will complement each other. We have the, the common unity of Christ. We know that we're not perfect, but we will grow in relationship to God, and we will help each other in our walk with Christ. Perhaps that couple may say, we enjoy each other's company. Uh, or some reason it simply says, you know, she's cute. Is that a good enough reason? Or he's handsome. He has a good way about him. And I'll say, okay, those are good reasons. Build your case. Convince me that I should stand in front of the Lord and God's people and say, 
By the power vested in me, I pronounce that you are husband and wife. Because I am creating, God is creating with you a covenant. A covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God, is he not? In this psalm, beginning in verse 4 now, he begins to unfold the specific reasons to say he is in fact a covenant-keeping God who is good and one of loving kindness. Let's begin to walk our way through the rest of the psalm. In verses 4 to 9, he is the one who guides the wandering soul. We notice even in verse 5 that the people of God are thirsty and hungry. And why are they thirsty and hungry? Because now, as they're coming from captivity, they would have gone through at times lands that were not fertile. And now they're experiencing the hunger and thirst that would have come with it as they make their journey back home. And then also, if you notice verse 6 in this psalm, it's something that we will see throughout. In verse 6, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way. So even in their journey back, they're crying out to God, and God is answering them. And that is a wonderful theme that we see throughout the Scripture as well, particularly in the Old Testament. When the people of God would cry out, he hears. When even a wicked king like a Manasseh would cry out, he heard. When Hezekiah cried out to the Lord, when he he received the announcement that he would soon die, the Lord heard. God is a compassionate God. And so he's saying here, he guides the wandering soul. He leads them by a straight way in verse 7. It really is a, a way of, also a way of righteousness that he is bringing them back to say, you are to serve me. Notice as well. Another key word that we said was in this psalm. Not only does he guide the wandering soul, we see it in verses 4 to 9, but in verses 10 to 16, he frees the rebellious soul. Notice in verses 10 to 16, the word pictures that are given for us there. In verse 10, it says, There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. Because they had rebelled against the words of God and they had spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. So in verse 10, they're prisoners. And in fact, they were. They're in exile and some would have been literally imprisoned. He's saying because they had rebelled, and that's going back to the the reason for the exile itself is says they have rebelled against the words of God. There can be no help, there can be no um, recourse when one rebels against the very revelation of God. And so now what has he done? He has humbled their heart with labor. He has sent them away and now there's none to help. But yet what happens? So he chastens them in verse 12, but what do they do in verse 13? They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and what does he do? He saved them out of all their distresses. So now we see God's compassion. They cry, he helps. We saw earlier, they cry, he helps. And the result in it is that they would be a people, in verse 15, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. And here when it talks about his wonders, these great deeds, these manifestations of his greatness, these manifestations of his kindness and of his love, now you should give thanks because you humbled yourself and God heard you. I don't have time now, but if you were to consider 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 51, um, it's interesting that in that account, Solomon is communicating that in the first temple, he is saying that now, if the people of God, and really speaking prophetically, when the people of God would in fact disobey this covenant, if they would simply cry out, then God will bring them back again. And now they're crying out and he's bringing them back because God is a God of compassion. Here's a third consideration of that is the reason. So God is a God that guides. He is a God that frees. But notice verses 17 to 22. He is also a God who heals the afflicted. Notice that in verses 17 to 22. 
So verse 16, he, he shattered the gates, he cut the bars of iron asunder, he freed them, and now their shackles are, are loosened, they're coming back to the land. Verse 17, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, they were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then notice what happens in verse 19. What does it say? Then they did what? Cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he did what? He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Now let's pause for a moment and consider verse 20. And I wanted to consider verse 20 in light of what we earlier saw as to how they rebelled against his word. Verse 11, because they had rebelled against the word of God. And what word would that be? As the prophets would speak to them. As Jeremiah would cry out to them. As the other prophets would speak to them. Time and time again. But yet they spurned it. They would not hear it. They would not listen to it. But notice what it says in verse 20. He sent his word and heal them, and deliver them from their destruction. So how do we understand word in verse 20? Verse 11, I think it's obvious. um, The words that went forth to warn them that there would be a coming judgment if they did not repent. So in verse 20, he is simply saying he sent forth his word and that his will was done. He sent a word that would release them. What he did, he sent for Cyrus that would come and do what? Conquer Babylon. And now it's going to be fulfilled. How did he heal them? As he brings them back. He delivered them from their destruction. So he is a God who heals. The afflicted, when they cry out and they realize that God is the only one that can intervene. They come to the end of themselves. And it's good for us to come to the end of ourselves because generally when we come to the end of ourselves, we have only one recourse, and that is the living God. Amen? Notice another word, verses 23 to 32, he rescues, he rescues as well. So in verse 21, this section ends this way. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. And then beginning the next section here. He is a God who does what? He rescues them. Those who go down to the sea in ships and who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind and lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. But then what happens in verse 28? What did they do? And they did what? Cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still. Now, what is interesting about this account, we, give an, we gain an image here of God's intervention again. He is rescuing them. And notice the wording um, that we see earlier in the text itself in verse 27. They were at their wit's end. We don't use that phraseology much, do we? To say, be at our wit's end, and say, I I just have no other solutions. I'm at my wit's end. This is bothering me so much, I have no recourse. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to resolve this issue. I have no solutions whatsoever. And then here, you have to fall on divine grace. He brought them to their wit's end. And I want us to consider this for a moment. That is a demonstration of God's love and his compassion. When he brings us to our wit's end. That we realize that we don't have the wisdom. We don't have the insight. We don't have the ability. Only the Lord does. And then they cried out. He caused the storm to be still. Does that bring any image to mind for you? It does for me. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he say? Peace be still. He stilled it. And he did it for his people. Notice this fifth word intervenes. 
verses 33 to 42. Give thanks to the Lord for his goodness because he intervenes on behalf of the needy soul. Beginning in verse 33. Again, that section ends with give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Praise him in the seat of the elders. That is, we should exalt this great God because, again, he has been faithful to his covenant. And then beginning in verse 33, what does he do? Notice the things that he does positively. He changes rivers into a wilderness, the springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He changes the wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there he makes the hungry to dwell. So he's saying, as you come through the land, I will intervene on your behalf. I'm a God who can, and he did, provide for them as they would come back. Notice what he says in verse 38. He blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. So he gives this large picture of how he has intervened on the behalf of his people throughout this journey and really throughout history. He's a God that is good. He's a God of loving kindness. His loving kindness is a covenant love. His loving kindness represents his steadfast love towards his people, which give us all reason to give thanks. Now, as we look at these final acts of the Lord, I want us to pay attention to verses 39 to 41. And what we see here, the final acts of Yahweh. And notice in verse 39, they when they are diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. But, so in contrast, verse 39, look at their condition. They have been oppressed and they're miserable and they're sorrowful, but yet he intervenes on their behalf and he begins to bring his people back. In verse 40 and 41, we see that intervention. So he pours contempt on on princes, those that were holding them bound. And then he sets the needy securely on high away from affliction and makes his families like a flock. And notice the contrast in responses. When this is observed, when all these examples of God's compassion and his love and his intervention and his goodness are observed, there are two contrasting responses. Verse 42, notice the contrast. The upright see it and they are what? What does it say? They rejoice or they're glad. However, there are others who observe the same thing and their contrast or their response is just the opposite, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. They don't give God his due praise. They don't recognize his intervention. They don't see it as his divine hand. And this surely happens in the world today. I mean, we look into the heavens and men don't see a God who is created. I was recently fortunate to, as I've been visiting our Grace Events churches around the country, and I was in Hill Rose, Colorado, maybe about, actually it had to be September 27th because that's when we had the lunar eclipse. Hill Rose, Colorado is about an hour and a half outside of Denver and it's in the middle of farmland. And there's nothing around. And the little town of, of Hill Rose is about that big. <laughs> I mean, really, I could get at the, the stop sign at the beginning of the city and sprint through it. Um, but dear people there, they really are. I'm glad that we have a work of God in that city. And as we went outside, you saw the lunar eclipse, and we're all thinking about the glory of God. And because it's even darker than it normally might be, you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was really, really dark out. And I looked into the heavens and had not seen the Milky Way the way that I saw it then. Because there's so much um, light pollution around us normally. And as I looked into the heaven and everyone was out there and as we were gazing into the heavens thinking about the greatness of God and realizing that this great God is the same one who has looked down on me. He has intervened in my life to say, let there be light. And he brings us out of darkness. 
And we were perhaps outside for 40, 45 minutes just looking into the heavens. And I tell you, I'm not kidding at all. I must have said at least 20 times, God is great. And I pulled out this app that I have on my phone. I'm looking at the constellations and, and figuring some of them out. And again, I just put it down and said, the Milky Way, I've never seen it that way. It's been I don't know how long. And God simply said, let there be light. With no effort whatsoever. No strain whatsoever that he simply creates this great God. But the unrighteous see the same thing and they say, a bang. The unrighteous see the same thing and they say, a theory. The unrighteous, they look at mankind and they say, we are evolving. The unrighteous sees the, the mighty acts of God and they don't recognize it. They say that see how society is bettering themselves. The righteous look at what are really miraculous acts of God. And they say, oh, surely it was your medication. We don't believe in divine intervention. But the righteous the righteous see it, unlike the unrighteous, and we say, oh, give thanks for the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is indeed everlasting. He is a good God. The righteous are glad. The others, their mouth is shut. Whether it be because God has now judged them, their mouth is shut, or also because they do not want to give God his recognition. Verse 43, we'll close here, or bring it to a close, if you will. So now, the challenge to bring this psalm to an end acts as an inclusio, that is, this bookend to thoughts here. He starts with saying God is a good God and his loving kindness is in fact true. He ends with this reality to consider the loving kindness of God. Consider is a good word to muse on, to think, to reflect, to take into account, to, to not look at lightly when we think about considering something. We may say to a person, friend, you made that decision. I don't know if you really considered the consequences. Give that some consideration, we would say. And when you give something consideration, you don't do it lightly. It's not done hastily. It's done over time and thought and energy is placed into it. And so the psalmist ends with this thought, consider the loving kindness of the Lord. That is, reflect on all that I've said, I believe, in verses 4 to 42, and consider his great love again, his steadfast love, his covenant love again. Don't simply pass it by. It seemed, perhaps I can say it this way, that unfortunately, preaching sermons about God's greatness and simply God's greatness seem to be far and in between. It seems as if the glory of God and, and his goodness and his grace and his mercies and who he is is sort of second fiddle to man's potential today. We see the churches that are growing, and, and some of them, in one sense, are sort of busting at the seams, and, and very few of them, if you will, are preaching messages about God and his greatness. Even at times to preach a message, as Pastor Swartz said last night, he says that I, I preached this message, and, and there was really no application per se in it, and, and normally I might have it, and I said I encouraged them in it. We need that simply to give people a picture of God's greatness and lay that before the people of God and allow the Holy Spirit to take it into their individual hearts and their minds and their life experiences and to minister to them. And one reason that we do not give thanks the way that we should, one reason that we are not steadfast in our commitments and passionate in our commitments is because we do not have a picture of God's greatness. If I have a picture of God's greatness, and this goes back to the thought that I said earlier, if we have good theology, I see God's greatness and I say to myself, how can I not be excited and have a sense of privilege that I can serve this God? I stand in awe of him. 
But preaching today is not like that. Preaching today is often we want to discover the champion that is in us instead of the creator of the universe. There there should be some sense when we think about preaching, some sense of awe and fear and even shame and joy and confidence and hope. Now, I'm one for being practical because often someone will say, well, that's really not very practical for me. And I'm not saying that I'm against that. But practical without a theological undergirding is just pragmatism. And so there should be a sense of of fear even that we shrink from the awesomeness of God. Is that I stood there in Heroes, Colorado, and I shrank before the awesomeness of God. When I hear preaching that is biblical, that is heartfelt, that is passionate, then I shrink before the awesomeness of God. There can even be some sense of shame. I feel ashamed that I don't trust him and praise him as I should. But yet there could be a sense of joy that I feel overwhelmed that I'm forgiven. And I can cast my shame aside because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? I can have a sense of confidence because I know that if God is for me, that no one can stand against me. Amen. Now, this is not in that sense. Let me make sure that you understand it, and I'm sure that you do. But this is not in the sense how some may use that thought. Well, if God is for me, nothing can stand against me. I'm going to take on the world. I'm going to be that businessman that is going to own half the city. No, it is not that. It is not that first, it is this. Our enemy cannot stand against us ultimately. He cannot take away our hope, amen? He cannot take away our salvation, amen? He cannot. We can have confidence. Not a confidence in ourselves. not a confidence in our abilities, not a confidence even in our training. And I've been through theological training and several times over but I still must fall on my knees and say, living God, if you would help me, if you would help the people that I'm preaching to hear you, see you, and not see me, and whatever blunders I make, that you would override them. There can be a sense of hope that we can have because I trust the promises of God are true, and I have a look to the future. This is what we see in verse 43. He who is wise, let him give heed to these things, these things that I've just communicated to you. And I would even perhaps say these things that began in Psalm 104. He's the one that created. In Psalm 105, he is the one that has ratified, initiated and ratified this covenant. In Psalm 106, that you are a people who have violated this covenant in Psalm 107, but despite that, he will bring us back and he has brought us back. Give heed to these things. And I say to you, even over this weekend, give heed to what you heard last night about the glory of God. Give heed to what you're hearing from Psalm 107. Give heed to what you will hear about the perseverance of the saints. Give heed to everything that happens over this weekend. And over your life, when you see God's word, his character on display. Let's do a bit of a review, if you will. Notice in verse 4. So he wants them to consider what? Notice their sins and their circumstances. They had wandered, verse 4. Verse 5, they were hungry and thirsty. Their souls had fainted. Verse 10, they were prisoners. They had rebelled. They had spurned. Verse 12, they had stumbled. Verse 17, they were rebellious and iniquitous. Verse 26, their souls had melted. Verse 27, they, had, they reeled and they staggered. They were at their wits' end. Verse 34, there was wickedness in their midst. Verse 39, they had diminished and they had bowed down. They were under oppression and misery and sorrow. But yet, what did they do? They cried out. And God heard their cry, and what did he do? He redeemed, and he gathered, and he delivered, verses 2, 3, and 6. Verse 9, he satisfied them and filled them with good things. Verse 12, he humbled them, which was an expression of his love. 
Verse 13, he saved them. Verse 14, he brought them out. Verse 16, he shattered gates. He saved, he sent his word. He poured contempt. He sets the needy securely on high. Give heed, he says. Give thanks, he says. God is good, he says. His loving kindness is everlasting. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always giving thanks to the Lord. Father, thank you for your goodness, your mercy. Thank you that we are a people who have been delivered. And you delivered your son to bring that about. Show us mercy. In Christ's name, amen.